tonight not so much a, like a teaching as an exhortation, at least what I was thinking of here, and hopefully you know, an encouragement. Um, like we do every Wednesday night, uh, you guys are most of your regulars here, we're going to read the word and we're going to let it speak to us. Uh, I was thinking as I was preparing how strengthening it is to know, again, like I was just praying, that we can hear God's voice in the words of the scripture. God is not far from us, and he's especially near from to us when we're reading his words. So if you're not a follower of Jesus here tonight, just right up front, I want to say that we're glad you're here. Uh, don't know where you are. I wish we could shine lights on you and then we'd know. Um, I'm sure you don't wish that. Uh, but you're invited to listen in to hear. You're here, so we're glad you're here. The Christians talking to each other about what it means to be a Christian in this world. We're people who live in the same world as you do, in the same neighborhoods, on the same streets. We ride the same buses, we drive in the same cars, and yet our hearts break for you sometimes because we know that you live in this world without a sense that there's any real center, for real, for everyone, or any real life. And even more, you live in the world without knowing your Father and without having your sins forgiven. And we don't say that judgmentally. Uh, we can all remember what that was like. And we don't wish anyone to have to continue in that state. But all that can actually change. All that can change in a moment because Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he died on the cross for your sins. And he rose from the dead and he did it all so that you could hear that your sins can be forgiven. He told his followers, go everywhere and tell them that their sins can be forgiven and that you can have the promise of eternal life and friendship with God. So just right up front, you are, if you're not actually included in these things we're talking about, you should know that you're invited in. You're invited in by God. And then because he's changed us and made us not be the selfish, self-focused people that we were, by us too. Right, friends? You're invited in. And week to week, people get saved at this church a lot of times they walk forward. It's, isn't it one of the greatest things about going here? It's like, it's, it's, it's still happening. Praise the Lord. And so tonight, if you hear these things and you're like, I don't have that and I want that, then just know that the Holy Spirit of God is here because we're gathered here and he promised he'd be here when we gathered and he's inviting you into the family of God. And nothing that you've done needs to keep you out. You literally can just confess, Lord, that's I am rotten. Lord Jesus, save me from my sin. And he will. And he will. So tonight, uh, my plan is to just read a few verses together. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11, 12, and 13. I just want to read them slowly and let them sink in. That's the plan. So 2 Timothy, just in case anyone's not familiar, 2 Timothy is a letter written by Paul, who was one of the first leaders of the early church, and he traveled uh, the, what part of the world at the time. It was the Roman Empire, right, about 2,000 years ago, and he spread the message of Jesus. That was his life's work, to travel around spreading the message of Jesus and starting little Christian communities everywhere he could that he went. And he left, you know, we, in Christian circles we say planting churches. So he left all these churches across the Mediterranean world, mostly in cities, uh, everywhere he went. And one of those places was a city called Ephesus, which was an ancient Greek city on the coast of Turkey. If you think of the map in your mind, I know you all have it, right? 
the map in your mind of Turkey across the sea, Turkey, Aegean Sea, I know you know the Aegean Sea, and Greece, right? So across the sea from Greece, you have the edge of Turkey, and the city of Ephesus was there, and Paul planted a church there. Uh, there's still Roman, Roman ruins there. You can go see from when the Romans were in the city. The city itself, I believe, has been abandoned for a few hundred years now. But that's where it was, and one of the early significant churches, Christian communities, was actually there in Ephesus, and it was founded by Paul just a few decades after Jesus was crucified. And you can actually read about the event where it was founded in Acts chapter 18 to 20. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, the letter to the Ephesians is written to this community. And 2 Timothy that we're reading tonight is one of two letters written by Paul to this man named Timothy. It's actually named after the guy it's written to. Because at some point in Paul's travels, Timothy had been traveling around with him, but at some point he actually left Timothy in Ephesus and appointed him to be the leader for some specific jobs in that church. Jobs that related specifically to ordering the leadership of the church and then shaping the teaching that was going on in the church community. Timothy was a pastor, or you could see him as sort of an apostolic representative to guide the pastor, the pastors, the elders that were there. And that's what he was doing. And so he's getting, he gets a couple letters from Paul to help him in his work. In, this, in the second chapter of this letter, in the middle of all his instruction to Timothy, Paul inserts what he calls a faithful saying. You can see it there in verse 11. Let's read this. He says, this is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So there it is, right? And that first phrase has been rolling around in my head lately, right there in verse 11. This is a faithful saying. Of course, you, you tonight, unless you're reading in a language we don't know about, most of you, there might be a little Spanish or Portuguese or even Russian here maybe, but most of us here are reading our Bible in English. But Paul wrote this in ancient Greek, and the Greek phrase our translation comes from reads something like pistas ha lagas. Lagas, like logos, right, the word. Faithful, the word. And it can just as easily be translated as this is a trustworthy word, which is why... Another translation of this phrase reads, here's a saying you can trust. Your Bible might say that. I read one commentator that said, it's the thing we mean when we say something like, you can take this to the bank. I like that. You can take this to the bank. That's the idea. These are words you can trust. And I think we would all do well, you read something like that, I think we would all do well to take a moment and think about what a significant thing that is to hear in the days that we're living in. How many people do you know right now who are worried about what words they can trust? You know what I'm talking about? Thank you. I like a live crowd. How can we know? How can we know what's fake news and what's real news? Don't tell me the website that tells you. I don't want to know. The point is, look, some anxieties are probably just fear over nothing, right? But this one, how can we know what words to trust, seems to have a little more weight behind it these days. I mean, like again, even if we grant that some sources of information out there must be trustworthy, 
This is a rhetorical question. Please do not raise your hand and say me. Who has the tools, really, to be able to figure out which sources those are? It's, I'm just saying, things are getting pretty confusing out there. That's the state we live in. I'm sure you've noticed. I'm sure you've noticed. But here tonight, in this place, with this book open in front of us, we can be encouraged. Take heart. There are words you know you can trust. There's a whole ocean of them, actually. And a few of them are right here in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, there is actually some agreement on the part of people who study these things, scholars who study these things, New Testament scholars, uh, that what Paul wrote to Timothy here, a lot of people think it was actually a common saying in the church, and that's one of the reasons why he says this is a faithful saying. Something Christians would have known, something they used to maybe say to each other, maybe some kind of thing that they rehearsed together to help each other, right? Just maybe this was like a little you know, mantra for them. So it's kind of like Paul saying, don't forget Timothy, and then he gives Timothy the thing, you know, maybe Timothy could finish the sentence, yes, you know, if we died with him, we will also live with him. Interesting if this is something the Christians were saying to each other, right? Another scholar named Philip Towner writes that by using these particular words, this is a faithful saying, to introduce what he says next, Paul was pointing out that even in his day, these words were well-known, even that, well-known. And Timothy knew also, faithful is the idea, Timothy knew that they matched what the apostles themselves said about Jesus. These words conformed to what the apostles taught. Of course, then they were written into the word as the Holy, the Holy Spirit's words, so we know, right, then they're true. So, again, that means that these words are words you can take to the bank. So let's just let this thought sink into our minds and bear good fruit. This is a faithful word. You know, again, we live in a world flooded with noise, but one word cuts through all that. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it always accomplishes the thing that God sends it for, right? This is not fake news. These are words you can trust. So what if we actually turned off the other voices and started right here? What if we made words like this our starting point? Verse 11. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. And you think of all the things that people want us to know. You think of the clamoring of headlines and podcasts and commentators and authorities all trying to get our attention. But what if this word right here is more important than all of those other words? And since, again, we don't even really know which one of them is even telling the truth, if you held all of their words at arm's length and then held this one close, what would happen then? What if you held off all the other words? I don't know about that, but I know about this. If we died with him, we will also live with him. This is a word to give priority to. This is a word that you can rehearse to yourself first before you get out of bed. This is a word you can hold closer even than a doctor's report or a storm warning or a new mandate. Even if something threatens you with certain death, even for the people who might be threatened tonight with certain death, you can remember, if we died with him, we will live with him. This is the final word. No matter what else happens, the future ahead of us, followers of Christ, is to live with him. 
It doesn't matter what anyone else says. If through faith we've identified with Christ and been united to him in his death, we will live with him. And that's what Paul meant when he wrote, uh, if we died with him. In Romans chapter 6, I'll just read this to you. He also wrote, same, same idea. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, he says it here too, we believe that we will also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. These are great words. Death no longer has dominion over him. There's the expanded version of the faithful saying in 2 Timothy. And in Galatians chapter 2, Paul wrote, most of you know this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And those are words you can trust, right? So when the Bible says we died with Christ, what it's saying is that for anyone who believes that Jesus is Lord and trusts him to save, save them from their sins, God does an amazing thing. He unites them by faith to Jesus so that everything that's true about Jesus becomes true about that follower of Jesus. That's a doctrine of the union with Christ, people like to call it. If you trust Christ, this is true of you. When Jesus died, you died. When Jesus rose, you rose. You don't have to worry about the penalty for your sin anymore because Jesus died for you. And that means that God counts you as having died to that sin as well. And one huge thing that does for a person is just this. It frees you from the fear of death. You know, lots of things might die, right? Careers, cultures, nations, the planet, your body. But if you've realized how messed up you are and you've grabbed onto the fact that Jesus died for you as your only hope, in the end, you won't die. That's what this is saying. Jesus himself said, not a hair of your head will perish. Great words. Life, not death, is the end of the story. The story never ends. You'll live with him. These are words you can trust. So, you can forget what the news says about fear and panic and death and destruction. See how important this is? If we died with him, we'll live with him. And you can write that over your TV if you still watch it. Write it in black paint on your phone. <laughs> if we died with him, we'll live with him. And verse 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Is there something that you're having to endure today? Or are you facing something in the future which you'll need to endure? Does your whole life feel like it's mostly or maybe nothing but endurance? I'm sure for some people here tonight, 
That's what it feels like. My guess is you're not getting a lot of encouragement from the world. Most people who are having to endure real hardship aren't in the ranks of the beautiful people who get all the attention. Every once in a while, right? One of the cool kids gets sick and everyone pays attention. But most people, most of us who have to endure things, are not getting a lot of encouragement from the world. My guess is that the world is actually working to discourage you. The word from the world is that you should have had a much better life, right? You should have had a better life. You should have been able to expect a life that was like a vacation or a party. You know, ease and pleasure. And so the thinking goes, when life isn't like that, you have every right to get disappointed and bitter. That's just the basic sort of mindset today. You have every right to feel like God let you down and like you should just you know, look out for number one now at this point and at least salvage what you can, what you can get from life. And probably... You know a lot of people who are listening to words like that, I'm going to guess. But notice how different here the word of God is. So much of his character is in these words. So calm, so confident. Are we being called on to endure difficulty? Okay then, if we endure, we'll reign with him. That's all. Just that. But isn't that enough? Think of what's contained in those words, reign with him. You ever, you ever said that to a friend? Like you just, they're suffering and you try, to, you try to say it to them and they get mad at you? I know, right? We've, all, we've actually all been the one getting mad, right? I know the verses. But think about it. Think of what's contained in that phrase. Reign with him. There's things like the look into the future in Psalm 72. This is Psalm 72. He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, righteous, the righteous shall flourish and abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. He will have dominion from sea to sea, and he'll share that dominion with us. If we endure, we'll reign with him. That's the idea behind what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3 when he says, same idea, to him who overcomes, you know it, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame, Jesus says, and sat down with my father on his throne. And there's this in Revelation 21. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Romans 8 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Notice, same idea. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider, you guys know the verse, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. 
There's a lot of this kind of thing in the Bible. There's a lot of it. God wants us to know about it and think about it. The more we fill up our minds with what it's actually going to mean to reign with Jesus, the more we'll actually get excited about it and the more we'll be able to endure. I just think that's key. We gotta we gotta scour the scriptures for what we need. And if what you need is to get excited about the future, because right now you're not, then you need to fill your minds with the pictures of the earth when Jesus is reigning and ruling. And you need to remember that he said, I'm going to share this with you. There's so much. There's so much about it. Praise the Lord, we're in Revelation 21 and 22 on Sunday mornings. We get to study it slowly together. But I just encourage you. I just read from Psalms, from, a, from an epistle. It's all over the prophets, right? We need to fill our minds up with what it's going to be like when Jesus is reigning. Maybe it'll keep us from getting so mad at the different people that we have in charge during our lives. You know, so many times people run to the worst possible things to help them make it through. Obviously, a lot of us know in this room, addiction only makes problems worse. But humans go there, don't they? Try to solve their problems. It's just a thing that just makes bigger problems. Or, you know, we go to TV. Filling our mind with things from TV or YouTube or Netflix or whatever, social media, is literally filling our mind with the opposite of words like these. And then we'll have no strength to endure. Now, talk to you know, college students who are struggling. College seems depressing to them. It's like, well, wow, what are you doing in your spare time? Well, I binge watch Netflix. I'm like, well, that might be why you have no strength for life, right? It almost certainly definitely is, right? But if we fill our minds with what God says, that what's coming for us is reigning with Christ, then we'll have the strength we need and we'll endure. And if we endure, it will all come true. That's what that says. 2 Corinthians 4, another scripture you know. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The Holy Spirit wants us to be thinking about these things. That's why it's all over the Bible. He keeps saying, like, write that. Remind them. That's why we don't look at the things which are seen. What an interesting phrase. Have you ever thought about that? 2 Corinthians 4.18. We don't look at the things that are seen. What do you mean by that, Paul? That's like all we look at. No, no, no. We look at the things that are not seen because the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul's, Paul's asking us to think about what, what we fill our eyes with, right? So then, enduring here in 2 Timothy, pressing on through trials, is always worth it. One day, that enduring will be over, and instead of being under our circumstances, we'll be over them. Isn't that going to be awesome? We'll be like Christ, and we'll reign with him. Those are words you can trust. Won't that keep you going if you know that one day? It's not endure and then die. Any wonder why people are losing heart today? Gut it out and then die. And then, I guess, nothing. Why is anyone, right? No wonder people aren't going to work. It's much bigger than the stimulus package. Guys, 
Why should they? Because we want to be able to go to Lowe's and get the stuff that they used to make? Why? Think about what our culture has offered people. You know what everyone's saying? Let us eat, drink, and be merry. Because tomorrow we're going to die. That's what every hip-hop song has said. That's what every, every pop song has said. That's what they've all been listening to. We're going to die young. Right? But not followers of Jesus. We have filled our minds with what the reign of Christ will be like. And so we have the strength by the Holy Spirit to endure. Now next, in verse 12 it says, if we deny him, he also will deny us. This one seems a little scary at first, right? Like it's going so well here. And I'm getting so encouraged, but then this. But it can't be meant to take all, like, it's been building up your confidence, like, ha-ha, no. It's not doing that. That's not the point, right? Like, you can be good, but then if you slip up, you're done. That's not the point. This isn't meant to scare us. Remember, Peter denied Christ, right? Three times. He even said, like, literally probably the stupidest thing any Christian's ever said, if I know that man, let me be eternally damned which is where the phrase came from that I'm not allowed to say from the pulpit. So you either forget it. If I know Jesus, let me be damned. Like, you're done then at that point, right? And that's what he said. But then he repented. And Christ, in the end, did not deny him. And yet, it was Jesus himself who said, whoever denies me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, 33. And Jesus, when he said that in Matthew 10, he said it knowing that later on, a few months later maybe, Peter would deny him. And Jesus knew that Peter would repent and Jesus would forgive him. So Peter's case must be helpful here in understanding what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy. So to deny him, as it says here in verse 12, must mean something like when someone's life is examined from beginning to end, in the last analysis, it will be clear that their life shows that they said with their whole life, they said with their life that Jesus is not Lord. It must mean something like that, right? If our life denies that Jesus is Lord, if we refuse to have him be Lord over our thoughts and our actions, something like that, if we refuse to acknowledge to others that he was in fact our Lord, if we just would never do that, if that's what the sum total of our life is, then he will deny that we're subjects of his kingdom. He'll deny that he's our king. He'll deny that he was our Lord. If our lives deny that he is the source of life and forgiveness, he will deny that we were ever forgiven or that we ever found life. Of course, all the other voices, all the other words that are out there tell us that it doesn't matter at all if you deny Christ, right? They deny Christ all day, every day. And they tell us that we might as well too. It's really not something to worry about. Like if you really want to use his name like paint it into the rainbow or something, that's fine. As long as you ignore his words and his commands and his call to repent and his claim to be Lord of everything. Like, keep his name around if you have to. But deny everything that he himself said that he is. It doesn't matter if you do that because you won't ever face, you won't ever face consequences. You won't ever regret your decision. Like, that's not really a big deal, the world says, right? But words like that aren't trustworthy. 
these words are. Denying Christ does matter, because if you do it, he'll deny you. He says there are people to whom he'll say, I never knew you, never knew you. You can say that to Peter. He did know Peter. But there are people to whom he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's Matthew 7, 23. These are sobering words. But the fact that they're in the Bible means that they're helpful for our ability to endure trials and find life in Christ. In fact, I think the Lord knows, I'll say this lightly, that sometimes there are Christians who maybe face temptations so strong or trials so hard, maybe that one of the final helpful things that saves them is a word just like this, right? You can imagine getting in a situation so dire and this word comes back to you. It's never worth it to deny Christ. It's always worth it to endure. So when you shut out the noise and you hear God's word, what do you hear? Endure. It's worth it. Refuse any temptation to deny Christ, and then you'll reign with him. And then we have verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now that phrase it can almost seems like it seems like it means several things at once, right? Is it sort of softening what he just said in verse 12? Like, if we deny him, he'll deny us. But it won't be too harsh because he'll just stay faithful to us no matter what. I think we can actually back in to what's being said here <coughs> like this. You look at the last thing in that verse. You can take this to the bank. God can't deny himself. In other words... No matter what, God is totally trustworthy, always consistent. He's not going to morph or change into some other kind of God all of a sudden. We're actually, you know, pagan deities in their stories. They sort of morphed into each other. Their identities were fluid, and that's just the word that I've seen used. And one God could sort of combine with another God or turn into another God. Interesting that the pagan deities had fluid identities, right? It makes a lot of sense. But not the true and living God. He's not going to morph or change into some other kind of God. That would be to deny his very character. That would be to deny himself. And he can't do that. He won't do that. Which means that we can bank on him to the very end. He'll always be who he is. So then the phrase right before that makes sense. No matter what, he remains faithful. He's the rock that never fails. He remains true to himself and all his promises, even when nobody is faithful to him. If all the world stopped believing and trusting God, it wouldn't change him. If every man and woman was faithless, he wouldn't all of a sudden be faithless too, like, you know, God was hanging around bad company or something. Like, oh well. No. God is bigger than that. And in Christ, by becoming a man, he's united himself to humanity forever. I mean, if you think you're getting bored with the Bible, go study what it says about the incarnation of Christ. I don't know how you could possibly get bored with that. In Christ, he has united himself to humanity forever, and he's ensured that the promises that he made to Adam and Abraham and David and to all of us through those men would be kept, that all those promises would be kept. That's what Christ, one of the things Christ was doing when God became man. He was ensuring that all those promises would be kept. Nothing's going to change that. 
He will be faithful to bless and redeem everyone who comes to Christ. They will be his people, and he will be their God. So then the first phrase here, if we are faithless, must mean something like, even though if someone finally denies him, he'll deny them, right? A little phrase before that. If we, as his people who do not deny him, if we experience lapses in our ability to trust him, if you know we, his children, struggle and falter, he will be faithful to keep his promises. He will get us through. Again, Satan likes to lie in two directions at once. He likes to, you know, I think he's got two contradictory ideas out there going in this area. The one is that denying Christ doesn't matter. That's the lie for the world. And the lie to get Christians is the other one. One lapse, one moment of weakness, and you're gone, right? It's over. So for, for the world, he's like, ah, it's not, it doesn't matter if you deny Christ. To Christians, he's like, you slip up, and you're going to hell. And we're like, I know, right? <laughs> it's almost like Satan wants to write these verses, if we deny him, he remains faithful. But if we're faithless, he'll deny us. But they're not written like that. And that makes all the difference. Here are words you can trust. Denying Christ matters. Never walk down that path because it's the path that leads to alienation and separation from him. But to every weak, failing saint who wants to please God and trusts in his faithfulness, God will always remain faithful. If he went back on his promises to you, it would be to deny himself. And he can't do that. He can't do that. So there's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot of confusing things. There's a lot of disheartening things. There's a lot of straight-up sad and heartbreaking things. Absolutely, right now. Most of, we're all familiar with the different things that are going on. A lot of maddening things. Even maybe a lot of scary things from some perspective. What's the solution? We simply need to remember the words we can trust, and we need to fill our minds with them. You think about what we've read tonight. No matter what anyone else says, here are things you can take to the bank. How healthy and freeing and strengthening to fill our minds with things like, if you belong to Jesus, nothing can destroy your future. Nothing. If you press through trials, it'll be totally worth it. No matter how far away God might seem sometimes, one day soon you'll live with Christ and reign with him. So it matters whether or not we identify with him. It's never worth it to deny Christ. And when you experience failure, you can trust in the fact that he is more faithful than we are. In fact, he's always faithful. He's always faithful. All the news and pundits and influencers are saying the opposite. But let's turn down the other voices. Let's get good at carrying on while being untroubled by everything that clamors for our attention and demands our allegiance. And let's develop a keen ability to hear the one trustworthy true word. Psalm 12 says, the words of the Lord's, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. And Proverbs 30 says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. For all people, for all time, forever, 
these are words you can trust. These are words you can trust. And, you know, the other scriptures that I was just thinking about tonight, you know them. When, it, when, when you really realize how trustworthy the word of God is, it drives you to it, right? It starts becoming your refuge. And I just thought of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scornful, the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Why? Because he can't trust the ungodly or the sinners or the scornful, but he knows he can trust the word of God. It's a lamp to his feet. It's a light in a dark place. It's truth in a sea of lies. So if we get distressed by all the lies, I don't think God's up in heaven very surprised. I think he's like, I gave you my word. You hang with that. If we died with him, we're going to live with him. If we endure, we're going to reign with him. No matter what anyone says. And so it's all good. It's all good. The word is realistic. It doesn't paint an overly rosy picture of life so that we should be confused when suffering or deprivation comes our way. But it holds out true hope and strength to help us press through. To help us press through. And so, you know, a lot of people get paid to talk and write these days. (laughs) Oh, well. What an odd culture we've built. If you really think about it. The child of God goes, well, I don't really know too much about what's going on out there, but I know this. Every word of God proves true, and he is a shield to those who trust in him. Amen?